0: So last week, we continue this morning handling the same passage of Luke 10. We briefly looked at the first portion last week of the instruction that our Lord gives to the 72 missionaries here. And you recall, we summarized last week for those who were with us and some who were not able to be. We summarized the first half of this text, reaching into verse 8, from verse 1 to verse 8. And then this morning, we'll go from 8 to 16. But we summarize the first portion in the application to each of our lives in evangelism, knowing this is particularized to a specific place, people, and situation in history. Nonetheless, there are principles that broadly go beyond the 72 that speak to each and every one of us in our lives lived before the Lord as fellow laborers or co-laborers in evangelism, in God's harvest. And we noted principally three things at the conclusion of that for our lives, and that is quite simply that being a part of God's harvest as laborers, those who are faithful believers in the harvest of God, requires that we be prayerful, faithful, and grateful in our lives lived before the Lord as laborers in His harvest. And this morning, From that kind of sense of summarizing the first half of this text, I want us to continue by noting the positive instruction now being given to their actual missionary endeavor. We'll notice the very instruction that our Lord gives the 72 as to what they are to do as missionaries. The very first piece I want us to consider, and there's two of them, as I was working through this text, you wouldn't believe how symmetrical my, my notes kept becoming, you'll be so pleased. There were, there were, there were, there's two large parts, then there's two subsets, then there's two principles, then there's two ideas, then there's two considerations. I couldn't believe how symmetrical it all worked out, but anyway, that was a little bit of a joke um, that didn't land, but moving on. There are two, believe it or not. One, the very first one that we need to look at on the positive instruction that our Lord gives to the 72 is they are, number one, to be... A great blessing to the villages of Galilee. That is what they are to be as missionaries. The 72 going out into the villages of Galilee. They are to be a great blessing to the villages of Galilee. Notice verse 9 and 10. We'll make a few observations. Verse 9. Heal the sick. This is their positive instruction. Go forth. Heal the sick in the villages. And say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. So this is the role of the 72, or the very first positive instruction that is given to them as missionaries. They are given the power of Christ to go forward to the villages of Galilee, heal those who are full of infirmity and weakness physically, and to nourish those who are full of infirmity spiritually. So they are to heal physically and nourish spiritually many people within the villages of Galilee. That's the basis. That's the positive instruction. Physical healing and spiritual nourishment. That the 72 are to go forth from the presence of our Lord and conduct ministry in Galilee. Now, there are some important things we need to know right up front. And that is, I want us to consider just briefly, through the text, who exactly are the individuals who are to be healed, and then subsequently taught about the kingdom of God. I want you to think about that just for a moment and then look at the text with me so you can see how the text is operating on identifying who exactly are the people who are to experience healing and subsequently hear the preaching of the gospel. Who are they? I want us to consider them clearly and identify them well within this text because from there is the rest of the text argument so i want to make an argument as we go for the next few moments and i'm putting a lot of weight right here on who exactly are the people in the villages who are to experience healing physically and then subsequently hear the preaching of the power of the kingdom that brought that healing to them who are they Notice how we can piece that together in verse 8 and 9 together. Look at verse 8. Again, we summarized from there last week. We're going to use that as our launching pad into verse 9 and then going forward for the rest of the text together. Look at verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Again, consider just for a moment as we kind of build our case together for handling this text, asking the question, who are the individuals to experience such nourishment, both physically and spiritually? And then I want to identify them in such a way, verse 8 and 9, because I want to add or address what that means for us in our own efforts of evangelism. So who are they so that principally we can address that same mindset or that same group in our efforts right here, us, today, In our labors of evangelism. Let me read 8 and 9 once again. And then I won't digress. I'll move forward. Answering this critical question. Who are they? In order that we might make broad observations. For our personal evangelistic effort. As well. Verse 8 once again. Whenever you enter a town. And they. Receive you. Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Building out of this text what this means for our present evangelism, the identity of the folks who are there present on the ground, I want to make two observations about our modern evangelistic efforts based on this text. Number one, consider in evangelism in this text, and principally to you and I, in our labors. Consider, number one, the role of receptivity in evangelistic effort. Consider the role of receptivity, or maybe I could say it a little more clearly, the role of a receptive heart in the efforts of evangelism. How so? Because I'm identifying the people in verse 8 and 9 as those who are receptive to the gospel. Do you see, look at how the logic of the passage is working. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, that's where the evangelistic effort even begins for the seventy-two. How do you know to spend your energies and your efforts? How are you gauging your engagement with the gospel with another? Our Lord says here in the very first positive instruction of the missionary enterprise, whenever you enter a town, so no judgment has been passed yet, you're entering a town. And that town, those folks there, receive you. Then proceed to eat what is set before you, heal the sick in that town, and say to that town, The kingdom of God has come near to you. You see, the receptivity of the people determines the responsiveness of the disciples. Here in this missionary enterprise, Jesus makes very clear, if we note the text very well, that urgency in the mission as he moves toward Jerusalem, he set his face toward Jerusalem, he's going towards Jerusalem, and there's an urgency now about his mission as he heads toward Jerusalem. And this urgency of the mission, combined with the preciousness of the gospel announcement, requires that the disciples waste zero time and zero energy on non-productive gospel engagement. Now, if we were to think of this text in light of, because this can be a bit dicey, where you're determining, I hope to be helpful as we move forward, but, but we all need to wrestle with this thought of determining a sense of receptivity toward our gospel evangelistic comment and engagement and conversations and be able to discern if this is indeed Productive. I'm basing that principle out of the text of when they receive you, proceed. There are, if we went back in the text, it it was preached through the Gospel of Luke several months ago by now. But you remember there are different, uh, the, the parable of the sower and the seeds. Right? So we already know when we come to this text and you go to a town or a village, that is something without further description, there's folks there. There's going to be present within that community this basic concept of different soils, or or what we could say is heart responses to the gospel. There's going to be a varying array of how people will receive you, how they'll engage with you, what they'll listen and take from you, and what they don't want you to say and will not take from you. This is just built in, as our Lord has already explained earlier in Luke's gospel, that there are different types of. Of soil or different types of heart conditions in relationship to hearing the gospel so so far simply put i would say this our lord is instructing the disciples with the positive instruction of their missionary endeavor to spend their energy working only within the right soil I'm further asking this second question, how does this thought, that is indeed particularized to a historical setting, but nonetheless I'm pressing to say it has direct connection to us or direct application or principle for us in evangelism as well, and that's the question, how does this thought shape our understanding of evangelism in the present? To spend your energy in evangelistic effort, of which we see prior in the text, you should be doing. Be a laborer. Be a Christian witness. Be a testimony to the truths of Jesus and historical realities and the relationship that you share to them or to Him. Being a Christian. But how now does this comment in the text or the thought of judging a receptive heart or not, how does that shape your thought in evangelistic effort? I hope to provide two principles. Again, I think there are two things that we can take away from this thought, at least to meditate upon, if not be, I hope, persuaded by. What does this text or this thought within the text of a receptive heart, how does it shape our thought of evangelism? Number one. we are to actively distinguish or use the power of discernment to determine between people who are and are not receptive to the gospel and we are thereby to spend our time and our strategic purposes with those that we determine to be Receptive toward the gospel. Now, again, I, I know that that can be um, a bit subjective. And it can be experiential, right? Each one of us are in different webs of relationships. And, and we're trying to be faithful where the Lord has placed us in the web of relationships that we have and that we share. And we, and we want to be a witness, And so then in that sense, I might be in a web of relationships or in a context of ministry that I would determine is fruitful in this type of evangelistic engagement. Whereas perhaps you would look at that same situation and think, what are you doing in that situation? It's really not very productive from my perspective. And maybe someone would say that about someone else's engagement. You're still beating down that same door nonstop and from all the hate mail that you've received directly back, um, it's probably not that productive for you. So, so each person will begin to kind of engage differently and, and then analyze. So when I say we need to actively do this, I understand we open somewhat of a subjective, hard-to-determine analysis of what is and is not productive evangelism. How can we tell clearly this is not good soil to keep tilling in and to leave it alone versus that which is clearly great soil, and rich, and, and full of life, and we're going to be able to succeed in. So I understand there's some sense of subjectivity to it, uh, which probably the apostles, or the missionaries here, didn't experience. You know, largely, it probably wasn't a very subjective analysis if they wanted to hear that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and Messiah, and they need to repent and receive him. I don't think that they, they waited real subjectively to determine if the, the neighborhood wanted them there or not. It seemed to be more overt according to the words that are coming up in the text. So, with all of that said, in this sense, nonetheless, of a principle that we are to actively distinguish people who are receptive from those who are not receptive and spend our strategic time planting seed among those who are, I think there's two additional helpful categories for gaining a sense of someone's spiritual receptivity. Let me provide them to you. One author writes this way. So, quote, Who are the most receptive people. He goes on to provide this analysis, which I think is very helpful, and I put forward to you to consider as we move forward. I believe there are two, he says, two broad categories for consideration when determining if one is receptive to the gospel or is not. He provides category one, people in transition. This is a broad category for many folks who are under this situation of being in transition. And number two, he says, also people under tension. So these are the two broad categories that he's operating off. And I'm putting forward for your thoughts considering evangelistic effort to determine, is this person interested in am I having a productive engagement with the gospel? Or is this a wasted effort on my part? is a consideration of people in transition and people under tension. He goes on to summarize it this way. That's because God uses both change and pain to get people's attention and to make them receptive to his gospel announcement. End quote. So, if we were to describe then these two groups of de- helping us determine or narrow down an individual's receptive response or heart toward the gospel and engagement with evangelism, consider the first group, who is a person of transition? If we think about a person in transition, it would be someone along the lines of either positive or negative Transition in life, one experience either upward mobility in their job place or experiencing its opposite, certain setbacks in transitional life. During times of transition, either location, relationships, position at work, position even within their family, different elements of transitional life speak to the need for spiritual stability. In other words, when life is kind of fluid due to life's circumstance and hardship, tricky maneuvering, or simply being relocated out of one context into another context, it could even be a new department and work. How many of us have moved from one department to oversee or to be a part of another department? And it's a whole other culture, even within a company, that seems to have a singular culture. Each little department, each little group has its own sense of culture, pecking order, and community networking. That sense of instability socially can create within a person a need for spiritual stability. These are people that we would recognize within our sphere of influence as people in transition. This sense of transitional space can create spiritual sensitivity. The second group are our people in tension. These are people that are around us. These are people, even within our assembly, folks we know close, family members, people we are connected to relationally, people in transition or people in tension. To define a person in tension is to define them based on things like understanding they have recently gone through a destabilization of a relationship that was very meaningful to them. In other words, perhaps they went through a long term relationship and now there is a breakup or there is a divorce. This is a person experiencing tension. Maybe you would describe it, add to that, the sense of life's tension squeezing in on an individual through the death of a loved one. Or a devastating diagnosis. Sometimes it can be that which we have hoped for or are in great need of, such as finances. There can be a financial turbulence or a meltdown a lack of something that is necessarily required. These are people kind of in vice grip life. They're they're people under tension. We've all been, all of these categories, at different points in our lives, experiencing transition of space and tension in life. And people who are typically in these places, as we ourselves, even as believers, know, during these providential difficulties folks are often looking to something bigger than themselves because of the current tension in their life and no way out. This is helping us determine those who are around us as we seek to be faithful in speaking forward the gospel. Helping us to determine there is a receptive heart. And there is such thing as an unreceptive heart. And our Lord is saying here within this text, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, a measure of receptivity within the heart, then proceed to eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in that town and say to that town, those folks who are receptive, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But there's another side, beside the first consideration of the role of a receptive heart in evangelism, there is another side to distinguishing folks who are and are not uh, receptive to the gospel. And in fact, perhaps it's a word of caution that we need in applying these principles too hard and fast. And that is, number two, we need to be careful to protect against selfishly assuming that all the people within the sphere of our influence are not receptive or ready for the gospel i say selfishly assuming because that's kind of the goal is to preserve self in the awkwardness of the engagement of the gospel so if we go on the one hand and we say we do need to apply well and thoughtfully consider prayerfully the web of relationships that we have and then be able to gauge and engage with others as to are they receptive to the gospel or not. When we get into that, that, that more subjective analysis, our flesh tends to rise up and say, good, I found a safe hiding place. For not sharing the gospel awkwardly and being in this tension of a relationship. I just prejudge you're not ready for the engagement and you don't want to hear about the gospel. And so, so, so point one can kind of help us all. And point two is to say that's not its purpose. Um, that is us being selfishly withdrawn and a lack of love and concern for the well-being of our neighbor. So number two, again, is we need to be careful to protect against selfishly assuming that all the people within the sphere of our influence are not receptive by prejudgment or ready for the gospel. In other words, we walk up into our community of relationships and we just kind of dust off our shoes and say, you know, you don't want the gospel. I can predetermine that because I know you. Because in fact, a recent survey performed by Lifeway a large Christian publishing house, kind of taking the pulse on different sectors of engagement with the gospel in the community, performed uh, uh, by LifeWay, asked 15,000 American adults, what was the most effective approach for inviting you to church? So what's the most effective? This is 15,000 people weighing in on this. 63% responded, a personal conversation with a family member. Do you see, now pair that with the thought of prejudging the web of relationships we have, that we know already they don't want to hear the gospel. We already know they don't want to come to church. And that's just power of discernment. It's not selfishly self-preserving myself. It's not seeking to stay out of the awkwardness. No, 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 that's honest. They just don't want to hear it. I already know. Do they? Are you sure? Is that being faithful? 63% went from not going to church to going to church based upon what? A personal conversation with a family member. 56% responded to what the most effective approach for inviting them to church was. 56% said a personal conversation with a friend or neighbor from that church. So in your building, are you sure that the neighbor you pass every day doesn't want you to talk to them about the Lord? To invite them to stick your neck out just a little bit in that relationship? To invite them to worship? Are you convinced based on your engagement with them already? Or are you selfishly seeking self-preservation and not making it too awkward? We could really be missing the boat on that. 56% said a personal conversation with a friend or neighbor from that church. So again... In summary of the first consideration that the missionaries here, that is the work of the 72, is to go forward into the villages of Galilee and bring great blessing of physical nourishment, physical healing, and spiritual nourishment to the people by way of using the power of discernment and recognizing a receptivity based upon the people. As we apply it to ourselves, I would leave you with this thought. Many factors determine someone's spiritual receptivity many factors adri and i um i I don't know if this is is good or bad but we watch um a program called alaska the last frontier if you've ever seen it and yeah it's kind of a a, embarrassing thing to admit honestly but um i mean not religiously but you know we'll watch the episodes occasionally um, and it's about this frontiering, ho- homesteading in Alaska, if you've ever seen it. And it's, and it's like reality TV where, you know, half the things are ma- totally made up and make no sense for this person's life. And it's totally fabricated for TV, but hey, people are doing something. You're standing there watching them is basically what it is. Um, I think the point in my reference of that in connection to the thought of many factors determine spiritual receptivity is because we're always struck, we were just watching an episode a few days ago, and we're struck at how the folks in that area near the water, near the ocean, nearly all of life is determined by the tide of the ocean. It's it's striking. I haven't lived that lifestyle, so I, I, I just never think that just how much, like an ocean's tide, determines almost everything you do and half the episodes are about this discussion on the tide you know can we go here well you only have five minutes because the tide is going down oh you got to go here we got to get down there hurry up the tide is in it's this constant determining factor of what you do in your life is by something outside of yourself that is constantly changing and, and, and in that sense, it's just like spiritual receptivity with the folks that we know. In that sense of high tide in life, something outside of ourselves, a factor we can't calculate. Either we are in transition due to something outside of us, which for that season of time is a high tide experience. There is a measure of receptivity there. This, these folks are in transition. Th- th- that what was stable is now unstable. Underneath their feet, it's pulled out from underneath them. They're needing a sense of stability that creates that outside circumstance of providence creates an internal spiritual sensitivity. Same thing with the tide going back out. Oh, we're all stuck here now. The tide went out. Right. So life functions the same way, whereas receptivity to the gospel does wane, does go down for long seasons of time. Maybe what was nerve-wracking around you is now solidified by your can do and now what you thought to be a free fall in needing others is no longer that. It's you standing on your own two feet, and you don't need anybody. And providence comes and goes. Like that tide, in and out, as we continue to pass by, outside things that we can't control create at times a need. And what does that mean for evangelism? It obviously means that we need to know the people that we spend the lion's share of our time with. Because that gives us access to them and their real needs based on life circumstances, which may create a spiritual sensitivity that we can strike on in sharing the gospel. Inviting them to church. Because right now I know what's going on in their life. There might be opportunity now, more than there was before, based on these circumstances. This will help us get to know the people that you spend time with. Knowing their life setting and the providence that is about them really can be an opportunity for the gospel that perhaps you had determined would never be there with that person based on other providential factors. But back to our text for our concluding time. Notice the next piece in the mission of the 72 is not simply for the sake of singularly bringing a great blessing to the villages. But you notice in the text of verses 10 through 12, it's also for the purpose of pronouncing severity of judgment. Verse 10 through 12 says, but whenever you enter a town, this is the opposite of a receptive people. They do not receive you. Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you in that day, Or I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Consider just briefly in our closing time that our Lord makes clear here that obviously not every heart and every person, every village is receptive to the gospel. And here, historically, in this situation, our Lord tells us, 72, to not only pronounce judgment upon those individuals, but use a physical illustration to announce it to the entire town. This is the act of dusting off the dust underneath your sandals. We saw this earlier in chapter 9, but I'll briefly give you the summary of its activity as well. Here in verse 10, quote, it symbolizes that the people of that very community are outside of the people of God. That as far as God was concerned, the disciples are pronouncing, your town is foreign soil. So again, as Jews, they would think this is certainly not foreign soil. This is the, this is the land of the people of God. And based now upon their receptivity toward the gospel, we'll determine if this is the people of God or not. This also, just in brief, is an important piece of our time this morning together and each and every Lord's Day It's an important aspect of preaching the gospel to recognize together as a people of God gathered on this Lord's day that every time the gospel is proclaimed, it brings a double ministry. It brings freedom and grace. And it brings with it judgment when it is neglected. The preaching of the gospel is never inconsequential. Calvin writes, preaching is the public exposition of Scripture by the man sent from God in which God himself is present in judgment and in grace. This is substantiated by verse 16, as we saw last week. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And it's the sense of rejection where the text concludes as our Lord expresses grief over those who reject him. I'll begin in verse 12 and then we'll just go through verse 15 just in close. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then he uses this woe formula to speak of compassion and regret and sorrow for these folks. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done entire in Sidon, They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Now, we need to note, of course, as we see... um, it seems like, a, what is the comparison here between Sodom, of course, and Corizon, Besida, and, um, and uh, uh, sorry, Corizon, Besida, and Capernaum? Well, as you consider, you know the story of Sodom, right? Ancient Sodom, even by this time, was a proverbial hotbed of wickedness. It was so terrible that in Genesis 19, our Lord burned it off the face of the earth, it was inexpressibly wicked. And yet here, this dramatic comparison between Sodom and these Galilean villages is drawn. How can it be worse for these folks than what everybody knows about Sodom? How will it be worse? What is the only conclusion that we can draw? But that it teaches us yet again about the preciousness Of the gospel. You see, Jesus expresses that the rejection of the gospel is worse than any sin ancient Sodom ever committed. And yet they were burned off the face of the earth in Genesis 19. But to sit here and to hear the gospel, to sit here and sing the songs that clearly lay out the gospel and to sit indifferent and unmoved and unchanged, unresponsive. He says, it will be worse for you than what was ever performed or done in ancient Sodom. You notice he uses the phrase on that day to create the context of judgment. It won't be subjective, it will be decisive, a clear moment where every man is judged. And the principle prevails to whom much is given in the preaching of the gospel, in the performance of the ministry of Christ, or sitting week in and week out hearing a minister preach God's word, serve you the table, and be indifferent. Our Lord says, woe to you. It will be worse for you than for ancient Sodom. Capernaum is the final highlight of the text. Capernaum, you recall in Matthew 4, our Lord moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, lived most of his life in Capernaum. And Capernaum was kind of like social evangelicalism. They loved the thought of Jesus. He he, he was in that town. It's awesome to be known, we're from Capernaum and he's around here. That's why he says, will you be exalted to heaven because I live there. Woe to you. They like the thought of Jesus, but not Jesus himself. So to whom much is given, much more shall be required. Let us pray. Father, we pray that your word will do its work in our lives to help shape our mindset and evangelism. Give us clarity to how to spend our efforts to be faithful. Give us mercy and compassion as you showed to Capernaum or as you expressed the regret and the sadness and the sorrow for those who reject, and let us be moved with compassion, Lord, to share the gospel. Take advantage of those relationships in your active providence, both within our lives and the lives of those in our relationships. Lord, let us first and foremost receive of your gospel ourselves, to hear it preached, to rest upon it, to trust in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.